And I also was noticing, now noticing, having seen this so many times, there was the questions that came underneath what is Christian as it was sort of filling in the autofill was what is cholera and what is Chris Brown's cell phone number. So those were like right there. Somehow the auto, people are searching for those things as well. Um, hey, but it's so good to be with you. My, my name's Jeff and it is so fun to be here. I, just as Doug was talking about Easter, I was just reminded of um, just how excited I was about um, what was happening in this community. You know, we had kind of this bizarre you know, way of promoting our Easter, which was to send out postcards that you wrote to personally invite people. And we believe that personal and relationships is always more powerful than sort of mass marketing strategy. And um, it was so fun to, to meet people at the door who would said, hey, I got a postcard from my friend or my daughter or whatever who was right here. And um, I said, what postcard did you get? Oh, it was the one that looked like an Andy Warhol peeps kind of, you know, nightmare or something. I was like, great. And being able to meet those, I, we had people uh, leading up to Easter who had filled out postcards in our services, came back to the office and said, can I get a stack of postcards? This is so fun. I love the response I'm getting. And so it was so cool. We had our own friends that we brought to church, um, having dinner with them on Friday night. And they grew up in a liturgical, like, which means like a very ordered service uh, kind of background where they had a real relationship with the church in that way, but had never been to an Easter service like ours before in their, in their life. They had so many questions. They were just like, it was so great. And here's the affirmation. They just were like, the people were so kind. We felt so invited. It felt like home. The music was great. What in the world is the deal with that wall? And I just, you know, it was like, but they had a great response to you. And I just want you to know, I, I'm so encouraged because as much as this is a family, it's not a closed door, you know, shut down. We have our own little secret circle and special handshakes and whatever. It is like, we want you to be able to come in and be able to experience, as Doug said already, the the resurrection of Jesus on display. And that's what we're about every single week when we get together. And so... Um, if you joined us for the first time at Easter and you heard us talk about this series we're talking about that we begin today, I- I'm so excited. Uh, I think there's so, many, there's so many people have curiosity, interest, even some sort of adm- admiration or love for Jesus, but they're like totally turned off by Christians. Like there's just the Christians have kind of ruined it for a lot of people. And my guess is if you grew up, so I'm really glad to hear, hopefully you'll be able to straighten out some of that stuff. If you grew up in the church... My guess is that you've acquired some labels, some things that the church has put on us that probably Jesus may not have put on, like may not have desired for Christians. So I'm excited not just that we would refresh and kind of get back to the basics of our faith kind of scenario. No, no, I'm actually thinking what will happen for a lot of us is, oh my gosh, that's what this is really about. I thought we were going there, but we're going someplace a little bit different because we kind of drifted a little bit. So I'm very, very excited, whether it's your first time, uh, you know, checking this stuff out or you've been at our church or any church for a very long time. Very excited. Uh, in fact, we want to get your input on this, on this service, meaning or this series. So if you are like, I hope they talk about something, about what it means to be a Christian, you know, here's your chance to actually influence the series. So there's a little card you got in your bulletin. You can check box you know, a few of those things. You can write in your own. If you get bored in the middle of the message that I'm talking about, like this is just not relevant at all. I'm, turning my, I'm just turning it off. What, I want them to talk about something else. Great. Write it on here, we'll, um, you know, we'll put it in the offering box on the way out, and we'd love to kind of take up a, a sort of a pulse of what people are wondering about what it means to be Christian. So very excited about this series. I'm excited for those of you who are joining us for the first time. I'm excited for all of our people who have been Christians for a while. Very excited. So before we jump into the first week of the series, will you, will you just pause with me and let's pray? So let's pray real quick. Father, we are, um, we are curious people. Even those of us who have um, been a part of or connected to a church for a long time have questions. There's questions that we have that we're afraid to voice out loud sometimes. There are questions about whether or not what we're actually a part of is what you intended. 
And there are those of us in the room, Jesus, who are not even sure what we're doing even at this moment. And so, Father, I pray that um, you would reveal yourself. And amid all of the questions, amid all the answers, amid all of the, the like sort of newfound knowledge, that the biggest picture that would emerge is, even if there's more questions, would be that you love us. Father, it's that that we pray for. That not that we acquire a more, you know, a greater knowledge, but that, Jesus, we would acquire a, um, a, a closeness with you. So, Father, as we pause, this is kind of our tradition, just in silence, God, would you speak to us um, just about how much you deeply love us? And would that be revealed to us today, Jesus? Father, as we learn, would we be known to you and fully and completely? Would you be known to us fully and completely? And would that be a relationship of love and not of fear or anxiety, but of tenderness and of closeness, Jesus? I pray that you would, you would teach us today and that we would respond to your words. In your name, Father. Amen. Well, if I was to ask you, if, I, if someone was to approach you on the street, it's probably a better way to say it, and say, are you a Christian? There's probably a lot of us that would say, to answer the question, we'd have a lot of questions. First of all, the word Christian itself is like, what part of speech is the word Christian? You know, is it a noun, like a person who is one? Is it an adjective? Like, you know, hey, dude, when, I, when we were driving out of the parking lot and you gave me that hand signal, that wasn't very Christian of you. You know, like whatever, that kind of thing. Uh, is it also the adverb form, which is to say that you were to add the, the L-Y at the end of it, which is kind of similar to the last one, which is you weren't acting very Christianly when you did that thing that you did, right? There's even sort of this notion of what, what are we supposed to say? If someone approaches us in the street and says, are you a Christian? Some of us would say, well, yes, I am, but I'm not like the crazy people. I'm like a regular person who's also, I'm not like insane. You know, there's cra- there's, I know what you're thinking, but I'm not one of them. You have to qualify it with a long list of things that you're not. Some of us would say, well, no, but I like Jesus. Or like if in some of our cases, it would, it would be something like, well, I, no, yeah, I used to go to church. I, one time I used to be, a, I used to be a, you know, uh, at the church. I was a something. I, camp, I went to camp one time. I, I went at Easter. I mean, you're trying to figure out the answer. Uh, um, some of us are, would say, well, but what do you mean when you ask me that question? Um, if some of us, we learned growing up in church, that the particular version of church that we acquired, whatever we were in our own church experience, was the authoritative final you know, word on what it means to be a Christian. So whatever our version was. Some of us, uh, my, my parent, my, my dad grew up Catholic, and it was like, this is the, this is the way. I mean, we have, our, like, we have our own little nation in Rome. It's called the Holy See. We have a pope, and it go, that we trace the ancestry back to Peter, and there would be no church without the Roman church. And, you know, it's just this kind of like, it's the Catholic kind of get excited and, and, you know, and then the, the Protestants would say, no, 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 no. We, the reformer, those who reformed the, the Catholic Church are the true church. And, and we have, you know, we really have captured the heart of Jesus and what it means to be Christian. And then, you know, we kind of look at the Protestant Church and go, well, gosh, there's like hundreds of different little denominations of all people who say we've got the true way to actually be the authoritative version of whatever it means to be a Christian. So there's all kinds of confusion about it. Some of us would say, well, I, uh, I, I was a Christian. 
and you know, there was, there was this time I was at a camp, or I was at some event, and the guy talked about the bus that I came in on would more than likely burst into flames the moment we got in on the way home, and I was totally terrified, but he told me if I walked up and threw a stick in the fire that I could be saved and, you know, rescued or whatever, so I did that, and I, was t I didn't want to get on the bus, but I, I also, he talked about, he just this big threat, scary thing, so I walked up and threw a stick in the fire and was like, okay, I guess I'm, I'm okay, but I haven't really done anything with that since then. Some of us, we grew up in a tradition where it would be like, there is no was. There's only you are, and then you kind of have made some bad choices, but there's no was. You are, and then you forever are, no matter what happens. Only there's still a part of us that says, but there's certain things if you did them, you know, you'd just be out. You'd just lose it. Something about you, whatever you got in terms of what it means to be a Christian, you would just lose. It would just disappear on you. So one night you're, you know, in high school, you're, you, you, you go out on a date and you go to a party and you act a little unchristianly and you have this fear driving home, you're late for curfew and sort of you re-Christian yourself, you re-pray the prayer, you go home and throw, build a fire and throw something on the fire or whatever else it is to mark this significant moment. You've done it over and over again under this whole notion of fear that you could lose it. Some of us in this room hate the whole idea of even the word Christian because the, the word just has its, its connotations of a judgmental fear monger who secretly desires that everybody would go to hell. Like, there's just like, I don't want to be that. And let me just say that as we talk about what it means to be a Christian, what this whole word means, the word Christian itself appears in the Bible a grand total of three times. Three times, that's it. It's not like Jesus is walking around telling everybody how to be a Christian. The word Christian only appears three times. And the, the first occurrence of the, the term shows up in a place, by the way, I should tell you this, I just have to let you know. Today, you will drink from the fire hose. I'm going to give you a lot of background, a lot of stuff, and you're going to be wondering, where's that little flyer? Kids are going to start crying in the middle of the, t the conversation. But you're going to be, you're going to be in a, a situation where you're kind of like, where are we going with this? Is this going to have any relevance? And it will, it, will t it totally will. But just to let you know, there's going to be some time where you're going, where are we going with this? What's happening here? And I'm, trust me, we'll get there. So everybody with me, drink from the fire hose. Pretty exciting. It's a lot of water coming out really fast. It might hurt your face, but here we go. Here's what's happening in the early church. Jesus, we just celebrated Easter. He's buried, rises again. The church explodes. Holy Spirit starts, you know, just mobilizing the church in powerful ways. In Jerusalem, in, in the, you know, this is the general area of Jerusalem where Jesus was, you know, crucified and rose from dead. You have the church exploding. Jesus' brother, James, is like the leader of that church along with a guy named Peter. And the church is just booming. Well, the church also begins to curiously expand on the outer parts of the Roman Empire. And so what happens is they start hearing about this. The church in Jerusalem starts hearing about this. And they send some people out to these outer places, one of them called Antioch. And they send a guy named Barnabas who brings a guy with him called Saul, who later his name becomes Paul. But um, he takes the, they, these two guys go to Antioch to see what's going on. So here's what's happening. There we go. Uh, Acts chapter 11, verse 25 says this. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, later called Paul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. This isn't a name that they chose for themselves. They didn't say, well, what should we call ourselves? Like I have, we have my son, my kids play soccer. And you know, like the greatest joy of my life is to watch the kids name their team. It's so funny. My daughter's team last year was the Rainbow Butterflies. They were, incidentally, their entire uniform was totally black. It was just black on black. Rainbow butterflies. Didn't matter. 
uh, my son's first team was the Thunderblades, which, you know, what's, what's more fearsome than a blade? A Thunderblade. Uh, so this year, our team name is SWAT. We played a team yesterday called The Hornet, singular. <laughs> the Hornet. <laughs> so, so you can imagine <laughs> the, this group of people who have come together under this banner of Jesus' name, they don't get together and say, well, what should we call ourselves? Let's go with Christian. They, they, don't, they don't have that. It's just that this is how they were called. You can see the passive voice. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. The whole term is imposed on them. And just to give you kind of an outside perspective, not just from an inside perspective of the Bible of how this sort of works, uh, if you look at the, the, the great Roman fire of 64 AD, uh, Nero, which is who he's you know, responsible for this fire, so he could rebuild it, rebuild the city, there's a Roman historian who actually kind of chronicles this event. And Nero famously, or infamously, blames the Christians for the fire. So here's just, there's a, a non-Bible source talking about Christians. Check this out. It's on your outline. It's on the screen, too. It says this, from Tacitus, the Roman historian. Consequently, to get rid of the report that Nero started the fire, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations. Let's stop there. The abominations by which the Christian community was known for were things like these heinous crimes. These are people who included all social classes, genders and races in the same room, and they hung out together on equal ground. Horrifying. They, they, these are people who, understanding the basic notion of human dignity, of human life, said in response to, the, to the, what was a frequent uh, practice of what we call infant exposure, where kids born with deformities, everything from cleft palates to the inability to walk, to, have, to having some kind of disability, were merely placed on the outskirts of the, of the city walls to be exposed and die. And the Christians said, we can't have that. That's unacceptable. So they would adopt these kids and take them into the community. You have to just imagine for a second, too. You have all these different races of people. You have, in some cases, you have masters. In other cases, you have slaves in the same room. Maybe not necessarily the same relationship, but they're there in the same room, gathered together. You have all these people that nobody else wanted. I mean, just even projecting, even 25 years later, if you can imagine, you've, you've started grabbing all these people who nobody else wanted, that the makeup of the church would be people who are of different races, who may or may not have some kind of physical or mental limitations, who make up the church body. That's the abominations. That is so gruesome for these people, so easy to attach blame because of these kinds of things. A class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. The people giving a name to these horrible other folks who have this weird society that got together and kept including everybody else who nobody else wanted, those people are called Christians by the populace. The popular name for these people is Christians. Keep reading. Christus, from who the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty, the extreme penalty being crucifixion. During the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilatus, if you were here at Easter, Good Friday, Pontius Pilate is what's being referred to there. You can tell also, by the way, that Tacitus doesn't fully understand, like, the name Jesus Christ. Because he, he has, well, it's Christus. We don't totally know what this, what this means. It's almost like he believes that Christ is the last name of Jesus. Like, there's you know, Joseph and Mary Christ, and then they had a son, and this is our son Jesus Christ. You know, like, this is kind of what the belief is there. And not really fully aware that Christ is the, 
is the Greek version of the Hebrew word Messiah, which means anointed one or chosen one. So he doesn't totally get it. He just says people were going around talking about Christ or Christus or Christus or whatever. So there's that guy who we know that guy was killed by Pontius Pilate with the most extreme penalty. And here we go. Keep on reading. And a most mischievous superstition about his resurrection. Thus checked for the moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the first source, 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 source of the evil, but even in Rome. So what he's saying is there's this bizarre belief by these crazy, abominable people that their guy who was killed has this super, there's a superstition around him that he actually rose from the dead. And it seemed like it was all over, but then all of a sudden it starts popping up. People have this belief and everybody calls these weird people Christians. Christians don't call themselves Christians, at least initially. The people connected to Jesus, they undergo, I would say, or they take on a much scarier term that Jesus gives them. It's a much more weighty term. It's not just Christian. It's something totally different. It's the word disciple. In fact, even if you look at Acts 11 again on your outline, the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. The people who belong to Jesus are called disciples. Now, when Jesus begins his work, his project on the earth, as we know it, as recorded in the Bible, he started inviting people to his own work. In other words, he announces some stuff, this is what I'm going to be about, and then he starts inviting people to sort of join him in that work. When Jesus shows up in the book of Mark, by the way, if you brought your Bible, we're going to spend the rest of our time in the book of Mark. Uh, it, it, when Jesus shows up in the book of Mark, Mark, by the way, starts out like, this is going to be Mark chapter 1. Mark starts out with Jesus was baptized, and then he starts his ministry. It's like super fast. Mark is just really on to like, let's get to the, whatever's happening. And Jesus is baptized, and then, he, then all of a sudden, he starts announcing what he's all about. He proclaims this thing he keeps, that he speaks about more than anything else, which is called the kingdom of God. And here's what he says, and I want you to check this out. This is like, if you had to like find three like buzzword phrases you could make fun of Christians for saying, they're all right here. Just to let you know, they're all like total Christianese words. Here they are. Uh, Mark 1, verse 14. Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news. There's one, good news. Proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Now you can tell, there's just already words right there like kingdom, good news, repent. What are we all talking about here? Let me, we could spend a week on each one of these things, by the way. But let me just give you really briefly what this is about. Jesus announces something called the kingdom of God. The assumption was that that would, that would be received as good news because the king, when he inhabits the land, when his authority is expressed, when his protection is sort of uh, um, released onto the people, people would say that's good news. Now there's an already a king, there's already a kingdom established in this area. It's a kingdom of Caesar. In fact, when a Caesar is born, a proclamation goes out, it's called a gospel or a good news. That then is, the understanding would be, the gospel of Caesar sounds like this. Hey everybody, unto us a Savior is born, the bringer of peace. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Okay, that's Caesar's kingdom. People already belong to that kingdom. Jesus shows up with his kingdom and says, the kingdom of God is now here. It's right among us. It has been inaugurated. It will be fulfilled later, but it's been inaugurated right now. That's good news. And then you encounter the most, most Christian-y word in the world, that if you were to make fun of Christians, you have the word repent. Generally, if you're making fun of a Christian, you apply a southern accent to that word. 
and say it with great ferocity and anger. I went to a big public college, and in the middle of our public sort of area, like the sort of where all the, everybody kind of converged by the food, of course, there would always be people with massive signs and in giant letters, repent, and they would put it in your face with a megaphone, I guess believing maybe perhaps because we were at a public school that, you know, every one of us was bound for hell, and that the, the solution was to yell at everybody, repent. So this was the way that they kind of turned everybody off from Christians, essentially. Now, the word repent, which although it's mocked frequently, it just means this. The best way to describe it is the word U-turn. It means that your life has a particular path or direction, and in light of this new good news, you can turn it around. It's worth turning your life around for. Repent, in, in one scholar I heard say it this way, that was really smart, he just said it this way, he said, repent means to rethink your present way of thinking. In other words, you have a pattern of thinking and thought that is governing your life. And now, as we talk about repenting, we're talking about switching that way of thinking. Let's reconsider all the ways we've already been thinking and start directing them differently. So Jesus says, there's this thing called the kingdom of God. It's good news. It's my project in the world that God's called me to. And I want, I want you to know about it. Now, in our church tradition, some of you guys have learned different ways to encounter the kingdom of God. Myself included. Some of us have only heard of the kingdom of God in these terms, like this. One of them is this, and they're all true to a certain extent. They've just been overemphasized in different ways. But one of them is like this. The kingdom of God is something about which you get to become a member. And now that definitely, Jesus talks about us being members. Paul talks about it too. Being members of God's family, being members of God's kingdom, that kind of stuff. But if we overemphasize the notion of membership, or at least we should say westernize it, perhaps Americanize it a little bit, what you get is this. I'm a member which means I have certain rights and entitlements and privileges that are given to me. I pay my dues in the form of an offering, and I just sort of inherit and am entitled to benefits of belonging to Jesus or whatever it is. The ultimate payoff, whether or not I'm ever really connected to him, is that when I'm dead, I get to go to heaven. That's it. And we've, there's churches, church traditions, that have really emphasized that only. Other church traditions some of us grew up in are that when we talk about the kingdom of God, it's something about which, which is also true, but probably overemphasized, that the principal way to think about the kingdom of God is that we're subject to it. In other words, we should always be living with at least a little bit of fear that God is out probably to get us. And that a little bit of fear is probably good so that we're not under his wrath and that we're able to sort of escape his anger. He's generally an angry God who is mostly upset at us, who, you know, we just have to try not to upset him even further. Some of us grew up with a tradition like that. Now, we are subjects of the kingdom. But maybe there's another way to kind of think of it. And we're going to talk more about this as the series goes, series goes on, particularly next week we talk about our own sort of church outreach project we talk about. But that is that we're participants in it. That God's kingdom has been initiated in Jesus. It is going to be fulfilled at a later time. But we get to join in his project. We get to join in the kingdom project of God through Jesus. So we're participants in it. Now, when Jesus... Look, just to give you a little context again, Jesus is baptized and he starts talking about the kingdom of God. And then he starts immediately after that, inviting people into that. Verse 16, check this out. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Now, here's the deal. Just we'll stop right here. If you, if you have a pen, I would underline these next words I'm going to read. If you have, it's in your Bible, I, if you, you know, are okay with ruining the super thin pages of your Bible with the silver or gold trim on the outside, I would say mark it up. 
Uh, if you don't want either of those things, under, do it on your outline. If you have to digitally highlight it, I would do it on your, whatever your iPad, your iPhone, whatever you brought. But here's what I want you to just catch. For they were fishermen, verse 17. Come, follow, underline the word follow. Come, follow me, Jesus said. And I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Verse 19. When he'd gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. Without delay, he called to them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. The invitation here by Jesus is to follow him. It isn't to be informed about him. It isn't to learn a special secret prayer. It isn't to learn the seven things you have to do to sort of garner a happier life. He says, follow me. Now, I grew up, I started going to church when I was like in seventh grade. And I've heard this story of Jesus calling these guys before. And the way it was always taught, and I believe this is still true, but I think there's a little bit of nuance perhaps in here too, is that he calls to these guys. Immediately they jump out of their boats and follow him. And it's always like, wow, look at those guys. If only we had faith like them. We would just leave everything and follow. Now, that's all true. That's totally true. But there's something else going on here that I want you to just kind of consider for a moment. Some scholars would tell us that the reason why they jumped out, we were asked the question, why would they at once leave everything? They don't even talk to their dad. There's not like a, oh, that sounds really good. Let me go and figure some stuff out. They just jump out. This is their livelihood. They've learned how to do this stuff. Why did they do this? So here's just a way to think of it. First century Judaism is in transition a little bit. It's, that transition is finalized when the temple is destroyed, meaning that the center of all of what they understood to be, you know, this is where God resided, that where heaven and earth intersected in, in that place. When that was destroyed in 70, you finalized this sort of transition. But here's what you begin to see as people are living outside, uh, too far away from the city to be able to make pilgrimages all the time into the city, the temple. What you have is this. You have a new kind of school mentality forming. At about five years old, kids would learn to memorize large chunks of scripture. They didn't have a Bible at their house. They'd go to the temple or go to the place where the scroll was held, and they would learn from it, speak it out loud, try to memorize it, and then go home and begin to sort of memorize it. If you showed a particular aptitude at five years old, you were given more opportunity to memorize more more of the scripture, more of the Torah, even some of the prophets, stuff like that as you got older. At 13 years old, not only are you accountable to fulfill the commandments of the Bible, but you also can begin to do this. You can seek out a known teacher, someone with a great reputation, with a word that means great one. The word is rabbi. You could seek out a rabbi. And you could say, I want to follow you. And the rabbi would say, after a series of oral tests, either you are clearly gifted, God has called you to this, to be my own student, my disciple, you may follow me, or... You know what? God has gifted you in other areas. Go and pursue your own vocation. Follow in your father's footsteps. Learn from him and take on his job. Take on his trade. Stay with me. At about 18 years old, you can marry someone. At about 20, you can begin your own vocation. And now, here's what's happening. Jesus goes to these guys who are working in their boat. Simon, also called Peter, and his brother Andrew are working in their boat. And he says to these guys, come and follow me. And they jump out of their nets. Or jump out of their boats. <laughs> maybe, they, maybe they got caught. They jump out of their boats. And they follow Jesus immediately. Why? 
Because the dream of following in the footsteps of a rabbi had already passed them. They were the rejects. Jesus looks at these guys who had begun their trade, who could not have been, who had already been told the dream of their families was to follow this, uh, some other rabbi, and they got told, no, 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 probably better for you to go and pursue a trade. Go follow in your father's footsteps. You can't imagine the honor that they would have felt. That rabbi would say, come and follow me. First of all, it wasn't that they came to Jesus and said, we want to follow you, although people did that. Jesus said to them, I want you guys to come and follow me. Ordinary people, fishermen, he says, follow me. The other guys with their, with their dad, James and John, who are in the boat with their father, means that they had already they'd just been told, hey, you're not, you don't make the cut, but you get to walk with their, your own dad, which means they could have been as young as 13 years old, maybe even younger, just learning their dad's trade, and they leave their father, who probably with a giant smile on his face went, oh my gosh. My sons have been chosen. Now, is it courageous that these guys jump out of the boat and do all that? Most definitely this is courageous. But these are people who didn't make the cut. And Jesus invites the ordinary folks, the people who aren't super spectacular, who haven't made any real sort of sense about their, their genius. And he says, I want you to follow me. He doesn't say, I want you to attend a weekend seminar with me. I'm anxious to give you my little class. We'll meet three days a week and we'll talk about some of these things. He says, I want you to follow me. The invitation here is like an invitation to a road trip. When I was in college, in my fraternity, there's a lot of really unwise things that sort of unfolded. Please don't laugh. Um, <laughs> but one of the things that sort of prompted a lot of sort of courageous and very dumb things was that people would walk up to you in our fraternity, this is a tradition, people walk up to you and they would just say, hey, you in or you out? If you ask the question, what are we doing? You're out. Now the only basis, the only way you get to make a decision about whether you're in or you're out is based solely on your knowledge of the person asking that question. So if a guy comes up to you and he's got a black eye and he's missing a tooth that he wasn't missing the day before, and he looks at you and he says, are you in or you out? Uh, where are we going? Oh, you're out. Oh, man, that's too bad. I was looking to get in a fight. I guess I'll just play Nintendo or whatever. You know, like, there, there's just, you had to make your decision about what you wanted to do based solely on the person who asked. Jesus looks at these guys who are in the boat, and he says, are you in or are you out? They don't know all of where Jesus is going. They don't know all of what's ahead of them. Even, even as they walk with him for years, they still don't get where, where it's all going. They make their decision based on the person asking the question. You in or you out? Jesus takes this invitational kind of stuff even a bit further to a very scandalous level. This is like, wow, he, invite, he includes the sort of ordinary people. Turn to Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. This is where it escalates to just craziness. Jesus has totally lost his mind. Here we go, verse 13. Once again, Jesus walked out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, which is the Hebrew word for Matthew. He saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Stop right there. When we talk about the IRS, none of us go, those are the best people. I am just waiting for an audit. I already have the dinner planned when they come over to my house, and we're just going to, it's going to be great. Kids, this is the IRS agent who's, you know, taking money back from us. Isn't that great? Um, none of us say that. 
But let me just put into context how horrible of a person a tax collector is in the first century uh, Jewish world. When Rome would conquer people, they would say, among other things, hey, we're going to need some money. We're going to need to tax you people. And here's how we're going to do it. We're going to need people to become tax collectors for us, but we don't want to use any Roman citizens. We'll just ask your people to do it for us. So what would happen is they would go into, you know, they would occupy an area using their massive army, and they would take people and say, do you want to be agents for us? In other words, we're asking you to be traitors of your own people. And you can take however much money you want for yourself on top of whatever you give us. I don't, we don't care how much you take. We just want our money. So you want to betray all your people, but you want a jacuzzi and a nice car, and you want to have a great house? Great. We have no restriction on how much money you want to take from your own people for yourself. These are people who are notoriously greedy, so greedy that they would turn in their own identity with their people. The, the best way to describe it is to think of it in these terms. It's the most heinous way to describe it. It would be like saying uh, the Nazis would recruit a Jewish person in the late 30s and early 40s in Europe saying, would you mind helping us usher people onto the cattle cars, your own people? That's the level of hatred that these people would have had for tax collectors. It's the same kind of feeling. These are the lowest of the low. As a special class of people, there are sinners and tax collectors who are so horrible. Jesus goes to this guy, Levi, Matthew, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at his tax collector's booth, his own little sanctuary of evil right there. And he says to him, follow me. And Levi got up and followed him. Jesus is not just looking for people who are the rejects who didn't make the cut. He's looking for the people that are the most heinous, the people who are the most outside, the people who are most opposed to his own people, the people that nobody else even wants to be around, the people who, if they walk into your room, if they touch you, they make you profane immediately by their presence. Jesus wants those people to follow him. Some of us in this room have a sense. I would follow Jesus, but I'm just not qualified. Not that I don't know everything, but I just, there's a path here. Jesus goes to the people who nobody else wants, who have a past, and he says, follow me, you in and you out. Keep on reading. Verse 15. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors, special designation of sinner, and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners. Some translations says the word. Why does he eat with such scum? Jesus' invitation is for those who are the notorious sinners. Not just the ones who have a little issue in their life, a little secret. It's the people who are notorious, who have a reputation publicly as being notorious. The impression is given for so many of us, that we have to have a sort of pre-qualification, credit check, background check, spiritual SAT score that's high. You know, when we show good promise for be following, you know, whatever, following Jesus. The front row sitters of the classroom, no, no, no. People who know a lot, no. People who are just willing to follow. There's a friend of Mariner's Church who's spoken every so often at some of our different campuses, a guy named Bob Goff. Some of you know Bob. He has this brilliant illustration which has haunted me for a long time. And he says it this way. I grew up in the church. 
I knew a lot about Jesus. I had memorized stuff about Jesus. I knew a, a lot of what he was about. I had taught Jesus to a lot of people. And, and I could explain a lot about Jesus. I knew a ton about Jesus. And he goes, what I realized I'd become, he goes, I, I'd become what stalkers are. Stalkers know everything about you, but they don't know you. He goes, I'd become a Jesus stalker. Oh, my gosh. He says, what Jesus' desire is not just that we would know about him, but that we would know him, that we would follow him, that we would walk with him. I have to tell you, the particular kind of temptation it is for me to become a Jesus stalker. There's so many things to do at a church. There's so many meetings to go to, so much to take care of, so much studying to do, so much to be a part of, that I almost, I have this very strong temptation to say, that's the important work God's called me to. Only the very first thing Jesus calls all of these people to, follow him. Not do better stuff, not be, you know, morally more awesome, don't study more things, walk with me, follow me. Jesus chooses these guys who are average guys, rejects, and hated people to follow him. Skipping down, like I said before, Jesus had, this is in Mark chapter 3, Jesus had, you know, we talk about the disciples, we talk about there's like, some of us, we talk about the term disciple, we imagine, of course, that there's like 12 of them, really 11 and a half, because one of them was, you know, wasn't that awesome. So there's like 11 of them or 12-ish, you know, whatever. And, and there's a distinction between the disciples, anybody who follows Jesus, and then sometimes he would make a distinction about the sort of inner group of 12 guys who he walked with closely, his own little disciple group, uh, uh, later called the apostles. And here, I just want you to catch this. Listen to what it says in Mark chapter 3, verse 13. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called, called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12 that they might be with him and that, they might, that he might send them out to preach. Let me say that again. He appointed 12, underline this, that they might be with him. And that he might send them out to preach. The 15th verse, or the, I'm sorry, the 16th verse has uh, them then doing these crazy things I don't think they're ready for. Like casting out demons and healing people and all this other kind of crazy stuff. They're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. But before any of that, he says, before even the teaching, the preaching, it is to be with him. Before anything else happens, the invitation to follow, the invitation of these, this inner circle of 12 is that they would be with him first. Before anything else, be with him. Jesus isn't a bland moralist. He's not just saying here are some new ways you ought to sort of live to be a better, moral, more moral person. He doesn't sort of come across as a Greek philosopher or a motivational speaker with higher modes of thinking or new sort of, you know, energy for yourself. No, 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 no. The goal for Jesus is that his disciples, his followers, would be with him. I was, this is like my favorite example of this idea. I think in some ways we talk about the disciple. We sort of don't have a good word for disciple. We have words like, you know, um, student or pupil. But in our world, we don't really don't have this kind of word. I think it captures it better, which is the word apprentice. My mother-in-law, this is... She's on, this is a couple years ago, her and, you know, my father-in-law are on, are on a, a tour of Italy. And she comes back telling us all about this 
uh, about their, their adventure or whatever. And they go to this artist village. In the artist village, there is a particular group of people, mostly men, who are learning how to become marble sculptors. And so they walk out of their tour bus or whatever, and they look around these people, and they're, you know, hammering away at this stuff and shaping things and doing whatever. And she asks, all of them are older. The youngest one is 40 or so, as far as she can tell. The oldest one's, you know, 70, 80 years old. And she asks the tour guide, which of these guys is the master? Which is like the teacher? And so the, the, you know, the guide gets out and kind of walks around looking at everything, kind of seeing who's there. And, oh, the master's not here. She goes, well, who are these guys? Oh, these are all the apprentices. Well, how long do you, how, I mean, how long have these guys been here? Most of them 25 years as apprentices. The next natural question, of course, is when does someone become a master? When are they no longer an apprentice? When the work of the apprentice is indistinguishable from the work of the master. Think about this. Jesus calls people to be his apprentices, to be his disciples, such that we would join him in his project, his kingdom work in the world. And we would be apprentices in ever-increasing through his own work within us that we would become more and more like the master. Not only us, but the work that we're a part of would look more and more like the master's work. That when people would see us, see our own lives, and the things that we're a part of, they would see Jesus more and more and more and more. Not because we're trying really hard, but because we walk with him, because we follow him. Now the trouble for most of us is that we already believe our apprenticeship should be over. I just, my own impression is that the walking with Jesus for my whole life is a little bit more important and a little bit more difficult than sculpting. Sculpting, as hard as it might be, is 25 years of apprenticeship. Jesus wants to do something for the course of our lives in which our own lives and our own, his own work in us is shaping us to be more and more like the master. This is why we talk about, we talk about Rooted, we talked about it earlier. Rooted isn't about us just having a new Bible study for people to get together. Rooted isn't a Bible study like you'd ever been a part of, ever been a part of one. It's an opportunity to have a great, maybe perhaps, like I would say, even sort of fearful conversation you might have never had before about your own life that you go, I don't want to, there's things in my life that I'm afraid to talk about. This is a safe place to talk about those, those things you're afraid to talk about. It's a place where people who are going, I'm not sure what it means to really sincerely walk with Jesus. I, I, I want to be connected to him, but I don't totally get it. That's what that's about. For people that have been connected to church for a long time, it totally resets what Mariners is all about. It resets what the church is all about. It gives you a new appreciation for community and belief. And ultimately, it's about people who are apprentices beginning or resetting or realigning themselves to be with the master. I want you to check out the story. This is Tom's story. He's one of our Rooted leaders now, but this is his story about his experience with Rooted. Check this out. So my spiritual journey actually started this year. You know, and unfortunately, I had the... Um, unfortunate uh, situation of losing my mother at age 14 to leukemia. So that was kind of the turning point for me in my life to kind of walk away from God um, with my brother and my dad. Unfortunately, the three of us weren't strong in our faith. And instead of, you know, coming together as a family and talking about things, we decided to put up walls and become very closed off 
not communicate. And, you know, now that I'm 30 years old, you know, after hearing the story with a friend of mine, you know, just was thinking that, you know, maybe I could, you know, at this point in life, use, you know, someone to talk to, um, you know, get God back on my side. So, you know, from starting in January here at this church, you know, I constantly heard about this rooted thing. I was like, rooted, what, you know, what the heck is that, you know? And I had come across some people that had done it before, and and, and all I heard was great things. Um, And it seemed like every Sunday, you know, in the bulletin or up on stage, you know, they're talking about rooted. So I thought I'd give it a shot and really step out of my comfort zone, out of my box, and, and go. Um, so quickly with Rooted, I was surprised to feel very welcome in my group. Because at first I was very apprehensive about, you know, being this 30-year-old man that has been, you know, away from Christ most of his life and not having a big, you know, a lot of knowledge about the Bible or the Word or Scripture that, you know, that I might be, you know, judged or, you know, might be made fun of or that type of thing. But quickly I found that, I was very welcome, and that everyone was there was also, you know, a little nervous, but just everyone was looking for community. You know, over the last, you know, several months, I've found that, uh, you know, God has really softened my heart, and I've come to find that, you know, God has forgiven me for kind of turning my back on him and putting him on the side. Never really forgot about him, but I just didn't honor him. And now, you know, he's completely changed me, and I kind of I've refocused my life to, you know, center him in the center of my universe and try to live my life for him. Do you get the sense Tom's like a regular guy? He's got real life struggle with real life pain in his own story, his own past. And he's looking to figure out what, is, what are we really talking about when we're talking about walking with Jesus? That's what Rooted's all about. It's about people who are trying to figure out what this apprenticeship with Jesus looks like. This is, this is what we're about. There are lots of ways to describe what Christian is all about. It's, you know, we can't get to all of the implications today about what this means. Over the course of this series, we're going to unpack a little bit more of this as we go. But I just want you to know, just as we kind of look at what this looks like, that by and large, discipleship Becoming a follower, becoming an apprentice, living in that relationship with Jesus is largely for the crazy people. Just want to let you know, it's for crazy people. When I look at what Jesus says to recruit people to his own cause, his own project in the world, his own relationship with himself, uh, it sounds like he needs a new marketing campaign. He has got a terrible brand. He needs to find a way to get people to have a little more of an on-ramp into his relationship, but he doesn't, he doesn't really pull any punches. I want you to see, we're going to skip ahead a couple chapters to Mark 8. I want you to look at this. Jesus, when he talks about discipleship, about becoming an apprentice, is largely crazy. Here's what he says. Verse 34. Whoever wants to be my disciple. And this is, again, it's open to anyone who would choose him. Must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. And just real quickly. The language being used here is very strongly a self-denial, dying to yourself. He even talks about the the most 
horrible image of dying in terms of a cross, that people would willingly choose that they might follow him. It means then that everything that we've been holding on to, that we've been following, we say, I release it. So that I might follow Jesus. Continue on, verse 35. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel, which is, just means good news, will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Jesus' invitation to us is, I choose you, the average people, the unwanted people, those of the reputation, those who don't have any particular expertise, I choose you. And he's saying, Do you, are you in or are you out? You choose me? And he's saying, here's what it will require. That you let go of following the other stuff in your life that you might follow me. Why don't you do this just for a moment? Like I said, we're not going to be able to answer every question in this series. In fact, I have high hopes that we'll create more questions. That you'll begin this journey, which is not just one in which everything's answered. But here's what I want you to do. Some of you have never done this before. I want you to close your eyes. Just for a moment. Let me just ask you, just as your eyes are closed before we you know, kind of respond again with some singing. What is it in your life that you are following? Everybody follows something. What is it that you are presently following? Is it an ambition? Is it a dream? Is it a relationship? Is it a, a voice of shame or of guilt, of fear or anxiety? Is it a material good? Is it a, a climbing a ladder of some sort? What are you following? And in some way, just in, your, in the silence of your own heart, just you self-evaluating, are you forfeiting your soul? to follow that thing. Every one of us has something probably that we follow. What would it look like maybe over the course of the next six weeks, maybe over the course of your life to loosen the grip on that following that you might follow Jesus more deeply and more richly some of you perhaps for the first time would say, okay, I'm, if this is what Christianity is all about, being a Christian is a disciple and a follower, at least I'm informed now whether or not I really want it. Maybe some of you say, I'm following things that are leaving me empty. Maybe for the first time you say, I choose Jesus. I follow him. Others of us, maybe it's a time to return that we've sort of lost our way. And Jesus welcomes us back, open arms saying, I choose you again too, over and over again. Father, we have so many questions and so many voices that speak to us and demand our attention and demand that we follow them. Father, would your voice, the one that says, I love you and I choose you, stop listening to those other voices that would say that you're a reject, that you're not wanted, that you're not enough. God, we hear the voice that says to us, I choose you. God, may we answer with integrity the question, 
you in or you out? And might we jump out of our own boats, feeling the honor of being included and invited and say, we're in. So Father, as we respond in song, would you hear the collective prayer of your people set to music? Would you be honored with our words and our voices in our worship and response, Jesus? It's in your name that we pray, Father. Amen.